on about enjoying. I'm hoping I've been enjoying a uh, study on the seven churches of Revelation. Um, you know, they, they tell us that the closest star to our planet, other than the sun, of course, is a star called Proxima Centauri over 24 trillion miles away. Now, that's a lot of miles in space. There's just a lot of space, I guess. That's why they call it space, huh? Um, the distances are so great that the astronomers came up with a unit of measurement that allows them to deal with some of these incredible distances called the light year. The light year is the distance light travels in a year. Makes sense, right? 186,000 miles a second. A light year is about, it's over 6 trillion uh, miles. I mean, it's just, it is just massive. Well, the wild thing about this, I mean, it creates some, some wild things with your mind because if you think about a star that's 15 light years away, that means it takes that star's light 15 years to get to us. In other words, let's say that this star blew up last night, kind of went out, just just shut down. Well, tonight, if it clears up, we would go out, we would still see the light because the light's still on its way. Matter of fact, five years from now, we would go out and we would still see that light, assuming that there's a star that's generating that. But actually, the star has been dead for quite some time. Now, churches can be a lot like that. There are some churches that in the past burned bright. They were brilliant. They were alive. Uh, and, and their reputation is, is, is such that, that the churches are uh, riding on that. The word out is that they're incredible. But reality is they have died. And sometimes the church, this is where it gets dangerous, is that people in the church are holding on to that reputation, that, that bygone era, whatever, thinking we're doing great. But actually, Jesus would say, you have died. Now, this was the problem at the church at Sardis. Again, we're looking at the seven churches. It wasn't because there were only seven churches in the Roman Empire or even only seven churches in Asia Minor. But the number seven in the Bible as a whole, but especially the book of Revelation, is a very symbolic number. It means complete and whole and, and thorough. Uh, this, these seven messages to these seven churches are for his church, the church from first century Asia Minor, the church, church in medieval Europe, the, the church in 17th century Japan, the church in 21st century Erie, Pennsylvania. The message of the churches are for us. It, it's complete. And so what we want to do this morning is we want to look at the, the next church in our, on our route, the church at Sardis, and see if, in fact, there might be something in there in that message that would be for us. And so if you've got your Bibles, I trust you do, would you turn with me, Revelation chapter 3. We're looking right at verse 1. Revelation chapter 3. It says, to the angel of the church of Sardis. Right. Okay, let's just stop for a second and look at Sardis. It's interesting because each of these churches basically reflect part of their, their city. It's very interesting. Understanding something about the city gives you insight into some of the things that Jesus will say. Because it makes sense. It's their history. It's what's in their mind. It's what they see every day. And so Jesus will refer to it as well. Well, Sardis used to be the gem of, of Asia Minor. I mean, it's got a long history. It was founded in 1200 B.C. 
It was a very wealthy, uppity, high class place to be. You wanted to be from the city of Sardis. Uh, Sardis was the, the uh, home of the Lydian kingdom. If, I don't, if I'm not mistaken, King Croesus was the, the, the gentleman. This was his palace home. Uh, Sardis did gold, archaeologists say. The things that they found within the city were, were for refining gold. Uh, Sardis was the home of Aesop, from the Aesop fable writer guy. He was from Sardis. A very storied place, had incredible history. Uh, Sardis was an impregnable fortress as well. They were built into the side of a, almost Anasazi style, built into the side of, of, a, of a mountain. So three sides were just stone cliffs. You could only access the city from the south. And even then, it was raised so high that there was just a very narrow, very steep winding path. So that it was virtually impregnable. Nobody could take out Sardis. Uh, they were very uh, comfortable in, in that. Too much so, so that in 550 B.C., when the Persians camped at their, the foot of their, their hill, their city, uh, that night, they went to sleep. No one had ever taken out Sardis before. Certainly it wasn't going to start now. So they went, the night watchmen went to sleep. Everyone went to sleep. And so the, the Persians, one by one, sent their soldiers up that winding path and took out the city. you think they would learn. 200 years later, Antiochus, same thing, time of war. And they're feeling kind of comfortable. No one can take out our city. And so they go to sleep at night. The watchman goes to sleep at night. Everyone goes to sleep at night. We've seen this picture before. And Antiochus comes up, scales, and takes out the city. Very interesting place. If you, if you look at this letter, you find a couple of um, uh, differences from some of the other letters. Uh, first of all, you'll, you'll notice here in, in this that there's no commendation. Every one of the other letters, I mean, other than one church, Jesus starts off with commendation. You know, these are evaluative memos. And when you evaluate somebody... You start off with good things that they're doing, right? You're doing this and this is good. Good job. But let me talk about this. Well, they don't even have any good things. Jesus has nothing good to say about these guys. Also, if you get into this, you notice that there's no persecution in Sardis. Now, this is amazing because one of the greatest enemies for the first century church were the Jews. And archaeologists tell us that Sardis had the greatest Jewish population of all the cities. There was a synagogue there the size of a football field. Yet, the Jews don't mess with them. The Romans, to our knowledge, don't bother with them. Now, I don't think it's coincidence that Jesus has nothing good to say about these folk and there's no persecution. Because why in the world would Satan lambast these guys if they're not a threat to his kingdom? Matter of fact, he likes this church. This is the church Satan liked. Just stay the way you are because you're no threat to me. That's what's going on in, in Sardis. And so he starts off and he says, these are the words of him who holds the seven spirits of God and the seven stars. It's seven spirits is the Holy Spirit. Uh, seven stars are the leaders of the churches. He says, I know your deeds, Jesus says. You have a reputation of being alive, but you are dead. Now, reputation. Now, what, what is a reputation? How do you get a reputation? Well, reputation will require an audience, right? People have to watch you. They have to watch your actions and your words and what you're doing and how you do life. 
And then they interpret that and they slap a judgment accordingly. Now, there's we do this all we do this all the time, whether we would think we're we're we're, we're not judgmental. I hope we're not, but we still judge people. Let me give you some, some names. You don't have to scream out loud, but you tell me or you tell yourself what their what their reputation is. Okay, names. Bonnie and Clyde. What's their reputation? Okay. How about Lady Gaga? If you even know who Lady Gaga is, what's her reputation? Uh, Mother Teresa. What's her reputation? Uh, Tim Tebow. What's Tim's reputation? Benedict Arnold. What's his reputation? Now, famous personages, we, we have a judgment, wrong or right or whatever, about these folk. But I would say everybody's got a reputation. The people in your, your little private world, you have one. Believe it or not, when your friends get together, they talk about you. What do they say? That's your reputation. And so they might say, and you might know of people who are, this, their reputation is they're just a kind person. When you say, how many times have you heard this? She's just a sweetheart. You know, or, or this person's arrogant, cocky, thinks there's something special. Or this person's shallow, you know, I don't have a brain in their head. Or whatever the, the, the thing is, we, we have, they're selfless, they're selfish, there's some sort of reputation. But look at the reputation Sardis had. Jesus says, I know what other people say about you. When the other churches get together, they say, oh, Sardis, now that's a good church. They're nailing it. And if you, you look at this, it's interesting. You don't have, they did not wrestle with, with heresies. There was no danger here from the teaching of the Nicolaitans, which Jesus hated. There's no, no danger of the teaching of Balaam or, or the teaching of Jezebel or some of these heresies that these other churches wrestled with. Sardis had a pretty good doctrinal statement. They were solid. And, and when the, the pastors of Sardis went to conferences and they said, I'm a pastor at Sardis. All the other people went, oh, man, you're here. And, and congregants love to say, I, yeah, I'm a member at uh, Church of Sardis. You know, people, whoa, yeah. Sardis had a great reputation among all the people. They had a, a happening children's program. You know, they had a, a, a really neat team. You can tell you, you've you got a problem with your teenagers? Bring them to the Church of Sardis. I'll straighten them out. They had a great small groups program. And they had a seniors ministry that was knocking it out. They were fulfilling the vision. But Jesus looks at him and says, I know what people say. I'm just afraid you're listening to the, your own press reports or the editorials with your name on it. But you need to know, I've got a different perspective here. Dead. Now, is it possible to be, a, when you think of a dead church, what do you think of? Big building, four people attend, you know, and they just, they're, 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 they're bygone era. They're just not doing anything today. That's what we think about with a dead church. But this church was nailing it. Nobody would have said dead except Jesus. Is it possible to be a church that's just rocking doctrinally programs and yet have Jesus say dead? This is the scary thing. Because so often we judge based on the outward. But you know, as well as I do, that churches and people have two worlds, don't they? They've got the external world. The world we want everyone else to see. We can kind of let people see what we want them to see. We manage our, our identity. We, we put forth the persona. This is what they see. But there's a private world, isn't there? What's underneath? What's going on inside? Now, can churches be knocking it out here and struggling here? Oh, yeah, yeah, they can. John MacArthur writes this. He says, uh, what are the danger signs that a church is dying? 
A church is in danger when it is content to rest on its past laurels. When it is more concerned with liturgical forms than spiritual reality. When it focuses on curing social ills rather than changing people's hearts through preaching the life-giving gospel of Jesus. When it is more concerned with material than spiritual things. When it is more concerned with what men think than what God said. When it is more enamored with doctrinal creeds and systems of theology than the word of God. Or when it loses its conviction that every word of the Bible is the word of God himself. No matter what its attendance, no matter how impressive its buildings, no matter what its status is in the community, such a church, having denied the only source of spiritual life, is dead. It's dead. Now, can people, individuals, maybe have a great reputation? People look at them and go, Godly walks close, sharp person, really, really, really committed to the Bible. Can they have a reputation like that? And yet be spiritually dead? Oh, yeah. It's that two-world thing going on. And, and so let me ask you, it's a real, real important question, what's your inner world look like? Now, we don't need to know what the reputation is and what people are saying. And, uh, people you know, scream Hosanna one day and crucify the next. Just forget the, the reputation for a second. What's going on in the inner world where you are today? Uh, what do you entertain yourself with Mentally, negative thoughts, self-promoting thoughts, worse. Things you would never have maybe entertained yourself with way back when, when you first started your walk. But today, eh. oh, how, are you, how are you with the truth? You were really into integrity at one point. But spinning it once in a while is not an issue for you. It's just nobody will really know. Do you love God's word in private as much as you might seem to in public? Do you pray more in private than you do publicly? Are you more enamored with personal holiness than you are the holiness of other people? You can look sharp when you're just really concerned about whether or not other people are growing or they're okay in their sin. But are you more enamored with your own personal holiness? What's going on on the inside? Because it's not... What's observable? That's usually the problem. Uh, the problem usually is what's underneath the surface. Uh, captain uh, Edward J. Smith, he was the captain of the Titanic. In 1912, we understand, we all know the story of, of the Titanic and how it was lauded, an unsinkable ship and all of this. Before it launched, very, very, very kind of a, ironic, almost a spooky kind of thing before it was launched there was a a interview that captain smith gave and somebody asked him they said what is it that would take down a ship like the titanic you know this is such a huge this is incredible there's just no way it's going down and this is what he said captain smith replied and he said the big iceberg that drifts into warmer water If a vessel should run upon one of these wreaths, one half of her bottom might be torn away. Some of us would go to the bottom with the ship. Kind of prophetic. Well, April 15th, 1912, over 1,000 people realized that it's not what you can see so much that's the problem. But it's what's underneath. It's what's under the surface that will cause the issues that will take you down that will take a church down so what's under the surface that nobody else sees in your life because that's 
the issues. That's what, what, what will kill you. You know as well as I do that uh, reputation does not always equal reality. And uh, real quick, Jesus is, is good with deeds. He wants, he's got a lot of stuff he wants us to do. But only when it stems from an inner world that's put together. When there's a discontinuity. Jesus is always going here. None of this, this is kind of crooked and off, but, but this will make up for it. No, no, this doesn't work with Jesus. It, it, starts, it starts here. And so he's got a correction. He says, wake up. Strengthen what remains and is about to die, for I have not found your deeds complete in the sight of my God. Remember, therefore, what you have received and heard. Obey it and repent. But if you do not wake up, I will come like a thief and you will not know at what time I will come to you. Now, here's the problem. Uh, we like to sleep, don't we? I love a good nap. Yeah. Some of y'all like to sleep a lot. You're doing, you're, some of y'all are doing it now. I won't point anybody out. <laughs> so we like to sleep. But the issue is when you're sleeping, you don't know you're sleeping. When you're asleep, you're not conscious of the fact that you're asleep. You don't know that you were sleeping until you wake up. When you're sleeping, you think the dreams are reality. This is what life is. You're not conscious of, of what really is until you wake up. Now, now, this is interesting because Jesus tells us to wake up. So how do you wake up? Well, lots of different ways. When I was a kid, my mom on Sunday morning, this was routine. This was a ritual in our house. She would get up real early, I mean really, really early, and she'd go to her stereo, and she would pop in, I don't know, the Blackwood Brothers or, or Elvis Gospel or Johnny Cash, some horrific sound, and she would bless this baby. And you're like, oh, man. And then she'd start cooking. Okay, and you'd smell the bacon and the pancakes, and boy, that kind of wake you up. But if that didn't do it, she would come in. And she, my mom's from, from Tennessee, she would start, uh, you know, pulling on us and push us and she'd say, y'all, rise up and call me blessed. Scripture is supposed to say you're supposed to call me blessed, so rise up and call me blessed. And she goes, well, we wanted to call her some things, and blessed was not one of them, of course, at that point in history. But being woken up is different, different for different folks and in different states of sleep and all of those kind of things. When I would walk into my son Andrew's room, he's not here, I can talk about him today. All I got to do is turn on the light and say, Andrew, eyes big. He steps up in bed right away. He's gone. He's out of bed in 10 seconds. That kid does not like to waste time. Now, Nathan, he's not here. I can talk about him today. When I want to wake up Nathan, I can have a parade, man. 76 trombones, 110 cornets, dancing girls, elephants, the whole nine yards. And he won't hear it. I'm Nathan. I'm grabbing and pulling him. It's just a different issue. Being woken up depends on how far asleep you are and and who you are. Now, here's the question. Uh, Might Jesus today want to wake you up? And, And perhaps this text is it. And you're sitting right where you're sitting. That's right. That's right. My, it's, it's not, these two have not been the same. And this, I don't, I'm surprised how bad this has gotten. And I never saw it. And you will, you will claim this passage for many years as a key text that God used to wake you up. Sometimes it might be a message you hear on the radio or a book that you, you, you read or a song that, that you hear where suddenly, that's right. That's right. Sometimes being woken up requires the, the guts of a loving friend, doesn't it? Someone who will put it all on the line 
and sit down with you and say, hey, I need to have a hard conversation with you. This is what I'm seeing. And God will use that to wake you up. Sometimes, if you're in deep sleep, maybe it's an issue of pain or disappointment or tragedy. And we've got to be real careful that we don't you know, just equate those things. Well, that's just Satan working, man. Or that's just my idiot boss. Or that's some stupid person I got in my life. Or being in the wrong place at the wrong time. And all those things could be true. But just maybe, just maybe you've got a sovereign God behind all of those things. Who wants to use those to wake you up. Because it's so easy to fall asleep. Now, once you've been woken up. Now, what do you do? Now, some folk, they got to get up and grab coffee, man, or they got to jump in the shower or they got to hit the treadmill. Because if they don't and they lay there, they've been woken up. They're going to roll over and go right back to sleep. And so what do you do? Well, he tells us. He says, I want you to remember, therefore, what you have received and heard. Obey it and repent. First thing you got to do. Is remember something. Now, what is this something that you're supposed to remember? Uh, I would guess, and commentators pretty much in agreement on this, that what they need to remember is the gospel message. 1 Corinthians 15, verse 1. This is what Paul says. Paul says, now, brothers, I want to remind you of the gospel I preached to you, which you received and on which you have taken your stand. The Corinthian saints needed to be reminded. Often we need to be reminded when we forget. In Second Peter 1, Peter is talking about these characteristics of life. What it looks like to be growing. What it looks like to be alive. We're going to do a study on this in the fall. Great study. But then he says this in one nine. He says, if anyone does not have them, these characteristics, he is nearsighted and blind and has forgotten that he has been cleansed. From his past sins. Now, this, this gospel, y'all, is, is the, the core of what Christianity is. Christianity is not a metaphysical belief system. It's not a, a, a ethic of how we're supposed to live. It's here. It's this. And what the gospel does for us is it shows us our total depravity. Total depravity does not mean that you are as bad as you could possibly be. It just means you are as bad off as you can possibly be. Uh, the gospel shows us God's incredible grace. So let me take just a second to remind you, if I can, of the gospel. You know that when God created people, he created us to have a relationship with him. We did. It was a wonderful relationship. I don't know if God and man joked together, or they, but they did walk together. And there was the creature-creator creature, creature relationship going on. They were intimately involved. But then God, who never forces himself on anybody, not you, not me, not Adam and Eve, gave them the choice. And they said, I think we'll try to be our own God. Thank you very much. And from that point on, the relationship split. And scripture lets us know that from that point on, every person born is born with a broken relationship with God. Now, something inside us knows that there needs to be a relationship with God. It's very interesting. Every people group that's ever been discovered is, is uh, they're theists of some sort. They believe that there's a God. They're seeking to find him. Now, where's that come from? There's an innate knowledge that, yes, that's what I'm born for. It's almost as if it's a Grand Canyon kind of gulf with, with you on one side and God on the other. Isaiah 59 tells us that what separates us are our sins. 
it's, it's last scripture will point a ton of these things out. And it will be lying and it will be deception and it will be pride and arrogance. Uh, scripture goes through and it says that if you know to do good things and you don't do those, well, that's sin. When you know you were supposed to be kind and you know you weren't supposed to be lazy. Well, personally, I start looking at that stuff and I got a pretty doggone long list. And, and what people do, and this is what religion is, Religion is trying to, to bridge this gulf. How can we get back to God? What can we do? Every religion is what every religion's about. And so they'll come up with things that try to bridge the gulf. Let me see. I'm going to read the Bible. Or you heard people, I'm going to start getting back to church. Or I'm going to do good. Or I'm going to do some sacraments. Or maybe I'm going to feed some poor people. I'm going to help out and, and care for others. Because we think that this will bridge the, the, the gap. But the problem is, Isaiah 59 does not say that the reason why we're not with God is because we haven't done enough good things. It says, because we have our sin there, and nothing's just going to erase the sin that we can do. But God the Father sent Jesus, who said from the beginning of his ministry, I have come to die. Disciples didn't understand what that was all about. But he said, no one takes my life, I give it. The Apostle Paul unpacks this for us. when He says that when Jesus was hanging on the cross, God the Father looked into the future, my future to me. Nobody, nothing, me, and took my very long list and put it on the back of Jesus so that Jesus bridges the gap. He takes away my sin for me, for you. And if, in fact, you recognize that and you accept that, you surrender your life to that, you know what? You are restored to a relationship with God. Now, what does remembering the gospel do? When I think about the Lord and how he saved me and how he raised me and how he filled me with the Holy Ghost and how he healed me to the uttermost. When I think about the Lord and how he picked me up and turned me around and placed my feet on solid ground. What do you want to do? Shout. No, no, it's not shout. Shout! That's what you want to do, right? I'm not charismatic, but you do. You want to say, thank you, Jesus. Hallelujah. Because you recognize that, that you were lost Really lost until he stepped in and did this for you. No thanks to you in any way, shape or form. When you think about the gospel, life changes. How you live, how you think, how you see is shifted. The, the, the hymn would say, oh, to grace, uh, how great a debtor daily I'm constrained to be. When you think of grace. I need to live for him. I owe him. My body belongs to him. My mind belongs to him. My time, money, and every, it all belongs to him. When you think of the gospel. Now, what is the, the consequence here? What, what happens when, when uh, if, in fact, you wake up? And this is important because even though he's calling you dead, he does not want to bury you. Isn't this interesting? You can still wake up. And he says this, he says, yet you have a few people in Sardis who have not soiled their clothes. They will walk with me dressed in white for they are worthy. He who overcomes will like them be dressed in white. I will never blot out his name from the book of life, but will acknowledge his name before my father and his angels. Who has an ear, let him hear what the spirit says to the churches. If you overcome, Jesus says, heaven, this is heaven. Think about how he describes heaven for just a second. Walking with Jesus. A freedom from sin, that's the white robes, not tainting you in any way, shape or form, uh, 
being introduced to God the Father by name, by Jesus. That's kind of huge. Seeing God. Now, if that's heaven, does everybody want to go to heaven? They don't want to go to hell. But walking with Jesus, being free from sin, they kind of like sin. They don't, they don't want to go to heaven. That's why C.S. Lewis said that it's safe to tell those who are pure in heart that they shall soon see God because only the pure in heart want to. Now, this morning, let me ask you again, where are you? Do you need to be woken up? When C.S. Lewis wrote the Screwtape Letters, this is a fascinating book if you haven't read it. Uh, Chief Demon writing to a, a junior demon on how the junior demon can effectively do his work. And he says this, he says, You are making excellent progress. My only fear is that you will waken this man to a sense of his real position. He must not be allowed to suspect that he is slowly heading right away from the sun on a line which will carry him into the cold and dark of utmost space. It doesn't matter how small the sins are as long as they edge the man away from the light and into the nothing. The safest road to hell is the gradual one with gentle slopes, soft underfoot, without turnings, without milestones, without signposts, right over the cliff. Are you, are you, are you sleeping? When I was, uh, when I play with my boys, they got different games now, but one of their chief Nintendo games was Super Smash Brothers Brawl. If you played this game, it's kind of like a King of the Hill sort of game. And on the front end, you can pick your character. And all the different characters have different weapons and different skills and different abilities. And all that. And you pick them all based on what they are. And then you guys have the big old battle and whoever's left standing wins. Well, you know, some of these guys can have their swords and some of them can spit fire and some of them can, can just sheer brute strength clobber you. But then there's the, they're looking rough, you know. And then there's this one. And, and I, I don't know if it's a she, but I'm going to refer to her as a she. Uh, she's a pink bubble, looks like a kitten. She's got a little, and she, a little tie, and, and, and she just looks cute. She, Jigglypuff is her name. And you go, oh, Jigglypuff. And you're looking at all the other guys, and they're looking mean, and they got their weapons, and there's Jigglypuff. And you go, why would anyone, poor Jigglypuff is going to get killed in this battle here. But Jigglypuff has got a very special, very special uh, ability what Jigglypuff does is she sneaks up behind you and she sings you to sleep. And so when you're not paying attention, there's the war going on and there's all and she comes up behind you. She sings you to sleep. Suddenly, if you're sleeping, when people are coming at you with swords and fire and trying to sit on you, it's pretty dangerous in a dangerous situation. Sometimes Satan's greatest weapon is not the persecution or it's not the temptation. Even it's just for you to fall asleep. Because when you're asleep in the middle of a battle, you're incredibly vulnerable. You're not effective. You are, you are spiritually dead. Now listen to this uh, words of this song, Casting Crowns. And as you, as you listen, ask yourself, am I asleep? How did I get there again? It says, be careful little eyes what you see. It's the second glance that ties your hands as darkness pulls the strings. Be careful, little feet, where you go, for it's the little feet behind you that are sure to follow. It's a slow fade when you give yourself away. It's a slow fade when black and white have turned to gray. Thoughts invade, 
choices are made. A price will be paid when you give yourself away. People never crumble in a day. It's a slow fade. He says, be careful, little ears, what you hear. When flattery leads to compromise, the end is always near. Be careful, little lips, what you say. For empty words and promises lead broken hearts astray. It's a slow fade when you give yourself away. It's a slow fade when black and white have turned to gray. Thoughts invade. Choices are made. A price will be paid when you give yourself away. People never crumble in a day. It says the journey from your mind to your hands is shorter than your thinking. Be careful if you think you stand. You just might be sinking. It's a slow fade when you give yourself away. Ask if you faded slowly. What was before so black and white, so clear, it is blurred. And if you really stop and evaluate what's going on in the inside world and look at it, you're horrified. Maybe what you did this morning, not wanting to follow the path of the church of Sardis, is to come before God and say, God, would you wake me up? Would you wake me up? I don't know how I got where I am. Would you wake me up? Or I know something's not right. I sense it. Would you please wake me up? Make that a daily prayer until he does. That's a prayer he wants to answer. Now, uh, I'm going to pray. We don't have a song at the end this, this morning. But I want you to know when we're done, maybe what you need to do is stay seated where you are just between you and God, and do your business with him. Also, you might want to come forward because the front is always open. And though there's no song going on, maybe you just want to come, get on your knees and say, Oh God, would you wake me up, please? It scares me where I've gone. You pray with me. Thank you, Father. For loving us so much that even when we would be asleep, we would be dreaming. You would care so much about us as to wake us up, help us again to see reality. Lord, for those, your children, who have wandered in places they ought not to have gone, or that which is so clear in your word, that which they would know is so clear, it's turned gray in their mind. They would listen to the words of others. They would recognize that others think they're okay and therefore they must be. God, would you deliver us from such thinking? Would you help us? Would you help me, O Lord, to see ourselves through your eyes? Would you waken us, God, that you might call us to to be by your side forever? Lord, would you you stir up a thirst for heaven? Would you cause us to be remembering your gospel? Would you cause us to to do what we need to do to remember it and long to see you, long to walk with you face to face and leave that which is down here behind? I would pray that that thirst would drive us as we do walk the rest of our journey down here. We commit this week to you, Lord, in the name of Jesus. Amen.